I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Whoa! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about that many Batman podcasts. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Whoa! Hey! with fans and people, people who Hello and welcome to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, Burt Ward's Holy Dog Food. It's a real thing made by Burt Ward in the real world, but with a different name. Guys, it has been a while, but I think this one's worth the wait. Today, we're celebrating 30 episodes of this very podcast with an interview with the man responsible for much of the dark detective Batman that we love today and the creator of Ra's al Ghul himself, comic book legend Denny O'Neill. I'll also dive into one of the greatest two-parters from the series with Deb Tarika. So, hold on to your safety belts, because this here's the wildest ride in the podcast wilderness! Today's episode... When Robin is kidnapped from his college campus, Batman begins a fruitless search until he's surprised by the sudden appearance of eco-terrorist and immortal Ra's al Ghul in the Batcave, along with his daughter Talia and manservant Ubu. They form an uneasy alliance that leads the group to scour the globe for the sidekick, but when Batman discovers the kidnapping is a ruse by Ra's to lure him into becoming his successor, It's up to the Caped Crusader to take down the newly rejuvenated Raish and foil a plot that could wipe out most of the planet. Original air date, May 3rd, 1993. Part 1 written by Dennis O'Neill and Part 2 written by Dennis O'Neill and Len Wein with a teleplay by Len Wein. Directed by Kevin Altieri. Music by Michael McQuistian and Harvey R. Cohen. Animation by Tokyo Movie Shinisha Company. Or is that Shinsha? Well, guys, I think it's Shinsha. Featuring David Warner as Rachel Ghoul, Helen Slater as Talia, and Manu Tupu, or Tupo, as Ubu in part one, and apparently there was another guy, George Desenzo, as Ubu in part two, which is something that I am only now realizing. This is the series at its best, and in some ways at its most different. Uh, it's truly an epic two-parter that introduces the Moriarty to Bruce Wayne's Holmes, Rachel Ghoul, who brings dignity to his villainy and a grander scope to the series. Part Lawrence of Arabia, part Indiana Jones, with a script that sticks closely to the comic book source material, there's something very special about this episode. The color is beautiful, taking us far from the dreary Gotham palette by airship and cargo plane to sandy dunes, snowy locales, and deep underground places where the mystical glowing green Lazarus pits bubble. I love how different this feels from the rest of the series without betraying the tone. It truly expands the rules of the world when a man can dip into some green goo and come out a crazy muscle monster, but it works. It still feels kind of grounded. It's the first Batman story that feels like it has global stakes and lives up to a worthy setup in huge set-piece battles complete with missiles launching and homing beacons, not to mention fierce one-on-one fights with jungle cats and a shirtless sword fight to cap it off. 
Batman with a sword for the second time in the series. I don't know how many times it happens. I know he does it in his Silicon Soul. This one's cooler. So, what more could you want? Guys, let's dive in. Today's fan, Deb Tarika. Deb is a buddy of mine who I know from comedy. She's a UCB improviser and teacher as well as a writer. She's great, and she really wanted to talk Demon's Quest. So, let's do it. for coming on the show thanks for having me i'm excited i yeah. like this episode a lot or these episodes yeah two-parter it's a big one i wanted it because it was more you wanted it because it was like double the story mm-hmm. so i thought i get to, would get to like talk longer here right we did talk about you <laughs> sitting here for four hours Four hours. i started the timer i'm in, I'm in yeah the long this timer is insane by the way <laughs> thank you and nobody's I'm, ever brought a timer no, to the it's, podcast it's strapped to a dog yeah, the dog is very well behaved, though, might I add. Thank you. <laughs> oh, so you, you did some obedience training? Yeah. You have to. You can't have a timer that's going to be running around. Yeah, especially a timer that heavy looking. Yeah. We're looking at an imaginary dog, by the way. <laughs> we're both looking at it, though. We both keep looking that's at it. That's because we're improvisers. I feel like we're like, cool, we've established that the fake dog is too in this general area. I'd like to imagine we're picturing the same dog. I'm picturing Pony. I'm picturing Alex Berg. Okay, great. Great. <laughs> Basically the same thing. In Inside jokes. Uh, so, I wanted to talk to you first about your background watching this cartoon. Yeah. When did you first see it? What was your first memory of it? My first memory of it is, uh, well, part of the background of it is um, my, my parents are wonderful, but they were very restrictive with TV. Um, so I didn't grow up getting to watch like um, Saturday morning cartoons and really maybe a little bit, but nothing much like that. We didn't have cable. I was very deprived. It was very uh, a deprived childhood. It, it wasn't. But where uh, were you from? L.A. Oh yeah, LA. I knew this. Um, that's okay. They they may not. <laughs> right, but I, I should have just played it off cool. Like yeah, as a podcast host, I'm asking, but as a friend, <laughs> I already knew this. But I asked it as a person. I uh, I accept you as you are. Thank you. You're welcome. When I could sneak TV. I would I was I loved TV growing up and as much as I could watch it I would but my parents they would like feel the top of the TV to see if it was warm like if they had been gone because I was there were times where we were allowed like one hour of TV a week parents aren't allowed to be that crafty that sucks it's so weird and there and it wasn't they weren't like mean about it I think they just wanted me to read and be outside and talk to people and be social and it backfired on them which is great (laughs) yeah it was Uh, all very good intentions like I know I'm not even close personally to having children but I have thought about limiting my children's screen time in the future yeah well because like the temptation to have them do what I do, which is just plant in front of a TV literally for 24 hours at a time, like we did this last weekend. Uh, but like, yeah, so they were just, it, it just wasn't like I could come home and like turn on the TV and like veg out for a little bit. So uh, in eight, it was either seventh or eighth grade. I think it was eighth grade when this was airing. I would almost every single day go home to my friend Amy's house after school. She lived a couple blocks down from me and it was walking distance from school and the real truth is uh, the main reason, and uh, I cannot imagine she's listening to this podcast or remembers any of these things, <laughs> but I, uh, I really wanted to go to her house to watch it because she had goldfish crackers. Um, they had like the big tub of them. And so I just sat and ate them the entire, I was a little bit of a piggy when I was, well, 
still am. But like, I, I just like any type. It was like the friends. We also had like healthy snacks at my house, and so it was always. So your parents gross. were responsible parents, which is horrible for when you're a kid who wants to just like yeah. do all the other things. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I would go over to Amy's house. We'd um, watch Animaniacs, and then we'd watch Batman. Uh, and it made me so happy. I just loved it. I love, I loved Animaniacs and I loved Batman. And it wasn't that I, I never really read comic books. I never really was into, I saw the, uh, the movies when they came out in the theaters and stuff like that, but it was never anything where I was like, I gotta seek out Batman. I gotta, I gotta watch and read this stuff and consume it however I can. Um, but like the show just spoke to me. Like I loved it and I watched every single episode of it. Um, I rewatched it recently within the last couple years when it came onto Amazon. Um, and some of it I was like, oh, I very clearly remember this. And some of it I don't. Like, I didn't remember them using the different openings um, with when it was like Superman, part, part Superman and part well, on Batman. Amazon, I think sometimes they use the wrong openings. Okay. Because it made me mad. <laughs> because I love the Batman one. I love the theme. I love all of it. And so anytime it was the Superman one, I would almost like dismiss the episode. <laughs> yeah, because like all, that, those should only be there for the fourth season. I think like when they redesigned everything. But they have yeah, and they have it more for the first. Yeah, it's very frustrating. And get your shit together, Prime. It's very true. I don't know why my instinct was to tap on the mic with that to make sure Amazon was listening. Are you listening, Amazon? (laughs) Head of Amazon? (laughs) Um, Jeremy Amazon? (laughs) Junior. Junior, yeah. Jeremy Amazon Junior. The new adventures of Jeremy Amazon Junior. I don't know what the show is, but it involves a dog with a timer attached to its back. Um, But yeah, that's my... uh, I don't know. I just really, really liked it. And then I, I have another really strong memory of... Um, uh, if you can believe it, I was a little bit of an outsider growing up. What? You I ended know. up in comedy, can but you you're a little bit it? of an outsider? I know. Uh, and I, uh, went to a school, to an all girls school that was just like, I was just really unhappy there. Oh my God. All girls school, no TV. No, you're everything. It was a, I was a Von Trapp growing up. <laughs> uh, but then, but there was like, I had a really like lovely group of friends that we're all like we were all weird outsiders in our own way, and I remember when *Mask of the Phantasm* came out on video. I, we must have I must have not noted, known that it was in the theaters or it something. Was very briefly in theaters. Yeah, because I remember we were like had a slumber party purposely to watch it, um, and I remember like loving the movie too. Maybe I can't remember the order of how everything came out. Did Phant- did that come out first or in the middle of things? Uh, *Phantasm* came out in the middle of things. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I don't know which which got me into which. Then I, I guess maybe I was already watching the the series. But yeah, like the, I have like those are like some of my only really good memories of junior high because it was just a really rough time. And uh, I mean I'm happy now. I'm good now. <laughs> it was all worth it. Um, but yeah, I, I just uh, yeah loved loved the series and it and it like kind of helped me through that a little bit. That's cool. Yeah. What was so you immediately picked this episode it's like i think one of the first ones you brought up yeah uh specifically the demon's quest yeah why do you like it let's dive into it let's dive into it here's the truth is i don't know i don't know why that was my instant first choice um uh but i remember i remember the episode very clearly and i remember really loving it i think i really liked talia 
uh, in that. And I think I liked the respect that they had for each other. Not ta- not Talia. No one respected Talia. Nobody respected no. He grabs her face and kisses her and then leaves her in the desert just, at the end of she's this. She's offered up as like, yeah. Yeah, just leaves her in the desert. He does. It's like, will you take me as your slave? Like, no. Like, I'm not going to respond with any words. I'm going to grab your face yep. and then I'm going to leave you here. And then she's going to slowly do the your upward. Your dad's probably dead. Up. Bye-bye. <laughs> Uh, funerals on me. Bye. Yeah, uh, funerals on me. I hope you. The perk of dating a billionaire <laughs> is that I'm emotionally distant, but I'll pay for your dad's funeral. P.S. I'm Bruce Wayne. Yeah. P.S. Uh, well, she knew. Your she dad knew. knows. Yeah. If you, whatever your dad knows, we're going to assume you know too, or maybe she knew anyway. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I was drawn to it. I think I. Um, yeah. I. I it, the, <laughs> This may be what triggered it originally, and it has nothing to do with Batman. Is my brother was dating somebody named Talia when he was in high school and I was in junior high, and I loved her. I really, really liked her, and I think I was probably drawn to the name. That was probably the only other Talia that I had ever, like, heard of, and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, and I, I liked, I think I always liked that, like, uh, Raish, I always called him Raj for some reason, and now, and I, lear- I like, relearn that it's Raish Well, that's a point of contention in general. Like, because he's Raish in this series, but he's, like, known as Raz in the movies. Maybe like, in that's Batman why. Begins, okay. They call him Raz. But, uh... I feel like that somebody just didn't do their job then. Somebody just didn't, like, fact-check that well enough to keep the consistency. I have no okay. idea. I know that Danny O'Neill, the creator of Raish al Ghul, pronounced it Raish, but he also did not give me a 100% this is definitely the way. He's like, well, that's what I always said. Oh. So I say Raish because this was the first version of him I saw, but also I we'll think... We'll call him Raish. I yeah. like it. It's, it's, it is what they call him in the episode. Yeah, there's something that sounds satisfying. Yeah. I'm a Raish head for sure. <laughs> Raish your head. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> Punch it up in the edit. <laughs> Um, but I love the, like the, the respect, the weird respect that they had, that Batman and Raish had for each other. And, and more specifically, like... That he called him detective? Yes, that's what stuff... I mean, like, I would play with the action figures. I had, like, a little Raish and a little Batman, and I always just like saying, like, detective! Like, just that over it's and over again. Like, the fawn... The, I don't know. It was this, like... I, uh, I've talked about this uh, with, with some other people, but, like, episodes of anything where bad guys have to work together to defeat other bad guys, when they find their common respect for each other, there's something like very appealing about that to me. And I feel like that that's a little bit of, of this, of them working together to save Because they're Talia being emotionally and... intelligent. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Usually they're just beating the shit out of each other. Yeah. Like, all right. Well, we have to do this. <laughs> Let's overcome our petty squabble. I like that. Yeah, because I feel like, I don't know, like you and I are sitting here in a room together and we don't care for each other. Right, but we're getting along because of this microphone, because of this dog exactly. with a bomb strapped to its back as well as a timer. Exactly. A time bomb. Well, that poor dog. Well, I mean, you brought it. It's my fault. In the reality that That's we've true. set up, you brought the dog. I'm just pimping new specifics onto it. That's fair. <laughs> when uh, the timer goes off, we all die. Yeah, we're okay. dead. When the podcast ends, we end. <laughs> Uh, I, I agree. I really like this episode because it stands out to me because it's so different than any of the other ones. Like, anytime Raish appears, it feels different. But yeah. in particular, like, the pacing and the direction and the type of story it is is very... Like, Batman is out of his element. There's a yeah. lot of, like, really wide shots. Like, it feels very cinematic. Like, you'll hear dialogue, but, like, see, like, Batman 
and Robin walking in like a snowy tundra or like they're in like a plane, but it's like, you you know, it's like very far away, like a lot of yeah. establishings. Well, and it's very, I didn't, never thought about this growing up because uh, I would never have put this together then and I hadn't seen Lawrence of Arabia at that point. But that shot, like in the desert, when they're crossing the desert on the camels and stuff, it is Lawrence. And, the and then music. the music is Lawrence. It's so interesting that it's pulling from a lot of different things uh, and I know it does that a, a lot anyway, but like, yeah, it's pulling from from all these different um, movies and and cool like quest type th- movies. It feels like Lawrence of Arabia and like Indiana Jones yeah. and just everything you kind of want in like this like desert epic adventure. Yeah, it was it was interesting. I was going back and rereading a little bit the um, the writer's guidelines. You know that, yeah. that thing we passed around, like. That, for uh, Batman the Animated Series. Ma- yeah. And uh, it's really interesting. Like, just one little part where they were referencing um, not wanting to use pop culture references a lot in it. Um, which I love. Like, that's always so cool. such a good takeaway. It's going to be evergreen. That's Yeah, so it, so it holds up now. They're like 10, 20 years later. When, and I'm sure when they were writing that, they're like, oh, that's so far from now but it is it's now and beyond right how many years has it been 20 it's yeah at least a little over 20 i think so because 92 yeah man but it is so cool but then to be able to like dip into like lawrence arabia and stuff like that where it's just like that is forever around also yeah it makes it feel bigger than an episode yeah like, i mean all of these i've kind of talked about it a little bit before episodes feel like mini movies mm-hmm. but this the two-parters especially feel like even bigger yeah uh like this one usually there's a title card and then you know you dive into it this one has like a cold open yeah and then it shows like it's a little unsettling the cold like open that. is amazingly boarded and direct like the animation's really good i get really nerdy about that but uh what is like robin getting kidnapped mm-hmm. uh but he's like, like crawling into his own dorm room window yeah. and that they have that like creepy you know like it's like in a thunderstorm and you see like the silhouette of like that demony mask yeah which looks like batman at first right and then he's holding like the the flashlight but i love that like the spotlight tracks robin as he like is tranked down yeah. and he collapses light turns off and then like there's just a window over him with like the rain running over like this path. It's so beautiful. It really, it's, it, I think maybe that's, it's, especially like growing up with that contrast of like Animaniacs and then that, like the silly contrasted with the, the beautiful and the well acted, like voice acted and like beautifully drawn and directed. It, it was, it was great. And it wasn't for kids. I know you've talked about that on the podcast before, but like it really was, I mean, it didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't. There isn't a ton of, fighting in this episode it's a lot of talking Mm -hmm. and then like there's an alleyway fight and there are like two major fights in this and three if you count robin just getting shot unaware (laughs) that's true and one are you counting the one with the jaguar or the panther oh yeah that does happen i guess there is a good it's a panther or jaguar i wrote panther slash jaguar in my notes um i don't know it's a black cat it's a black cat (laughs) like they have there's like a lot of like rachel Gould describing his view on like you know (laughs) eco-terrorism essentially yeah it's very like just just in rewatching it one is it feels like just in the political climate right now it feels like he's like got bernie sanders ideals and like executes things like trump like it's a very weird he's a monster but also is like but couldn't this world be perfect which makes him basically like an isis terrorist yeah 
It's crazy. It's scary. Yeah. I mean, or any terrorist. Well, it's also like weirdly what makes him like a sympathetic villain is because it's like, well, yeah, you're right. Like we are destroying the planet, but yeah. also we shouldn't blow it up and make it in your own image. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, it, it is when I keep going, I, I think about improv a lot and I come back to improv stuff a lot, but that the, I think it's Ian Roberts who said like people pursue pleasure and avoid pain. And it's that it's, it's the villains that are out for what they think is the greater good. I think that's so interesting. And at the end, they're a villain because they're selfish. Though. Mm. Like they, he, he just, just wants, wants to rule the world. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so we have Robin kidnapped. Mm. <laughs> Batman's in the Batcave. Stakes are high. <laughs> Alfred's really worried. You know because he just kind of bows his head and he goes upstairs. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and then there's like, oh yeah, there's like a letter came for you. <laughs> And it says, Dear Batman, save him if you can. And Robin's being held at jagged knife point. It's a very specific jagged knife. Yeah. Batman's super smart. <laughs> Just when he identifies the, the knife instantly and proves his, his smarts to... By the to way, it. I noticed this is from Calcutta. They have a hemp and rope there. <laughs> it's like, all right. In a black and white picture. <laughs> that is very... Un- uh- well, that's what makes him the worthy detective. <laughs> Ooh, very true. Uh, Batman gets over Rachel Ghoul being in the Batcave pretty quickly. I mean, he definitely responds like, Who are you? How'd you get in here? He's like, I am he who is called Rachel Ghoul. Okay. <laughs> like, yeah, he, it is really... And, like, his identity was just... His cover was blown. And we get to that in the next scene, but sometime in between, there's just them walking out of the Batcave together. Yeah. And how did Alfred... Alfred's been hanging out down there. How does he not see it? You know, I mean, Raish and Ubu... Ubu. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Ubu. I'm a big fan of Ubu Tubu. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that got you, but you raised your head, did not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Both, both equally dumb. I'm I very think. specific about what makes me laugh. Yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> Ubu, I, we have that like great runner where it's like, he's like, he calls him an infidel, and he's like, what does he say? He, it, Oh, when he's, like, insisting that Raish gets to go first? Oh, he's like, call it overzealousness. And then he's like, I think I'll call it strike one. And I love That's that he does that throughout the episode. Just those, like, little patterns. Yeah. And I love that it is it is just that nice setup for Batman later being able to go, well, I noticed that every time I tried to go first, you pulled me back. Yeah. But the one time... I got well, and to he's go like first. really a detective in this one. Like they're really hammering it home because that's what Raish cares about. Yeah, too. it's like, hey, you're super smart as well as being a perfect physical specimen. Yeah, I like that, and I like that it, they do prove themselves to be like equal adversaries in the beginning by Raish proving how he figured out who Bruce who, that Batman is Bruce Wayne. Yeah, which was huge. I remember as a kid, I was like, no, yeah, this, well, this surely is a dream or something, but. And then, especially because they don't deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> especially because they're like, oh, okay. This is it. Oh, you're totally his dad. Nice to meet you. Have oh, a cup of coffee. Oh, I remember you from the episode <laughs> Off Balance. I guess he, I mean, he really is like the Moriarty to, you know, the Batman Sherlock Holmes. Like, this is his, like, worthy, worthy yeah. nemesis adversary. You know, like, they're playing games with each other. Yeah. I, I kind of wish, like, because knowing that Batman knows. That it it like that it's against him the whole time. That he had a few cooler tricks up his sleeve, like to show that he had been well prepared for this. You know what I mean? Like, because uh, getting on the plane with him and like being totally at his at Raish's mercy makes it 
I th- I I want to believe that Batman knew the whole time. <laughs> yeah, I wonder when he figured it out because I mean I think he must have known something's up when he's like I showed up in the Batcave. Also, my daughter was kidnapped. Yeah, I mean he said he knew then, but I guess I kind of like that Batman's out of his element. Like that's what makes Raish such like a cool villain is that he is able to kind of pull him out of being the man. Yeah, but taking him away from being the man into just detective. Maybe it's a, a lessening. Yeah, I mean, he, he makes him basically this this normal dude more than any other villain. Yeah. He a- throws him out of his element. He throw, he, It's like, let's go to Calcutta and Malaysia. We're going to take my airship. Yeah. <laughs> That's, the by the way, the fanciest <clears throat> airship. They're drinking tea in a bejeweled cup. Uh, it's yeah. ouch. It's a Air Force One. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah, Harrison Ford was piloting it himself. <laughs> uh, as the president of the United States, he decided to pilot that and drive <laughs> Raish around. Uh, so they get to Calcutta after mm-hmm. after Raish is like, as Napoleon once told me, like he like keeps alluding to the fact that he's basically immortal. Yeah. Uh, which dropping some heavy hints, but you you gotta. Yeah, a, a, a mortal with green pants that never age. Well, they never go out of style. Correct. You can always wear green pants no matter no matter when you are. It's a it's a skill. <laughs> yeah, special skills, Rachel Ghoul. <laughs> green pants. It's just and he's made that font green. Everything else is like evergreen pants. Ooh, that's why they took the specifics out. <laughs> um, so they get to Calcutta and uh, Batman fights. He has an alleyway fight with some thugs with sharp sticks. <laughs> yeah. They look like scythes, kind of. Yeah. Um, that was a kind of a fun fight. I like, too, that they like addressed it all in the end where when Batman does lay out what he thinks Rage was doing the whole time, where he's yeah. like, they knew where to find us. Imme- anything that we were like, how did they know how to find them immediately? Like, he kind of lays that out and just answers that for us in yeah. the very end. Never uh, calls out that Rage was in the shadows going, Yes. Just masturbating. Yeah, I honestly, like, it's like close on him. His eyes are widening, but he's for sure jacking yeah. off. <laughs> Detective! Ubu just hands underneath, waiting. <laughs> he saves it, puts it in a jar. <laughs> Maybe if. Day if, 45. <laughs> day 45. That's actually not as bad as I thought for a guy that's been around that long. Well, Ubu isn't eternal. That's true. He's, he's one of many Ubus. I think in the comics, there like Ubu is a position that's also like oh. assumed, or there it's a family that like caters to Raish. Interesting. Uh, in some iteration, but uh, you know, save that semen. If all goes horribly, <laughs> throw some semen in the Lazarus pit. See what happens. See, See what, what comes happens. of it. There I'm we sorry. go. Sorry, no. I you know what the the pun stuff is wearing off on me. You now. know that was that was <laughs> what I want. That's why I actually brought you here. <laughs> this room is locked. <laughs> yes, you can't leave. <laughs> Come on, dog. Nope. <laughs> nope. I don't have any. Come along, before. Alex Berg. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, oh, I really liked. So there's this cut to um, Malaysia, mm. and it's like that that conversation where like Raish and Batman are kind of in that like jeep going through the jungle yeah but the cut is like from calcutta it's batman walking towards camera and we see the bat symbol yeah and then it pulls out of the tire on the back of the jeep it's like all of the boarding is so good it's really really smart it is it's like a movie it's a seamless it it just transitions so well and in such a smart way where it doesn't need to do that i don't think kids at home are going like yeah, let's see some real cool match on action right here but it or was whatever. Really, it looks so good. I was just watching it now. Like it, 
unconsciously affected me, I'm sure, when I was a kid. But now I'm like, yes, these are all specific great choices. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that a lot. Uh, another wide, long shot while they're talking. Braish shits on humankind. <laughs> they must be ser- forced to serve the planet rather than their appetite. <laughs> And at that point, Batman's like, all right, this guy probably <laughs> is the megalomaniac behind all of this. This guy who lives alone in a, uh, uh, or Batman, that lives alone in this huge mansion that just consumes right. everything. When do I tell him I'm that guy? <laughs> <laughs> I don't recycle. Oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. I hope Batman recycles. No. No. I bet Alfred does, though. Alfred for sure does. He goes through Batman's one big trash can, <laughs> and while that man's out at night, he's just, like, sorting through all the just different muttering plastics. under his breath. It's <laughs> just like, wash out the spaghetti sauce. <laughs> yeah, Batman loves spaghetti. That's, uh, that's what I love about the animated series, is they really hammer home that Batman loves spaghetti. Uh, let's see. Oh, I already talked about this. We feel like Batman's a small fish in a big pond, out of control, and his element in those wide shots. Mm-hmm. That's my uh, film school brain. Yeah. Uh, you went to film school. I Santa did. Barbara, right? Correct. See, yeah. I know a fact about you. No one was challenging you. Well, I was challenging me from earlier. It's good. You proved it. Okay, cool. You well, did. that's all I'll discuss about that. <laughs> but I feel like uh, my brain does work in that way. And so, like, whenever I tap into, like, like looking at things more intently, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. And it does. It makes it, like, worth going to film school. Yeah. Those <laughs> critical not that studies I that those say may have sucked, but also I feel like it forced me to think analytically. Yeah, and you can. Uh, there's just, like, a, a much greater appreciation for things like that, where it is, yeah, where, where they put the time and the effort into the detail, and you can appreciate it. Yeah. Well, cool. Film school. Yay. Go there if you want. Uh, <laughs> also a waste of money if you, uh, in some ways. Uh, so Batman fights a jaguar, <laughs> or the, you know that I love the design of that uh, temple. Yeah, that was cool. I like the um, the this like huge hard fight, and then the map that's just like sitting there waiting for him. I love I love that fight. I like because um, even in cartoon animals, I don't want to watch get hurt, and I, I like that he took his like he just put the kitty to sleep. It was the old throw a cat inside of a cape and throw a gas pellet inside. <laughs> but it also came out so cutely. Like, he very, like, gently rolls it out and, and its it tongue like is little, out. It's yeah. purring. I was a big fan of that. Oh, yeah. Anytime Batman fights an animal, it's pretty weird and fun. Yeah. It happens a few times in the series. And this is maybe top three times he fights an animal. Oh. <laughs> I think he <laughs> fights a big cat ranking. or a snake in some like that Maxi Zeus episode. Oh, a snake sound makes sense. Yeah, I'm trying I think it was like a I think it was a snake actually. I don't know. <laughs> You're the expert. Yeah. Oh, he also has a bad a bad badass line, but it's it's not. He's like sweet dreams, Tabby. <laughs> but the delivery on that is not <laughs> matching up to like I like why is that a cool line? Yeah. And who who I forget is anybody else in there when he's no, saying that? No, it's before yeah. Ubu and Raish bust in. Yeah. So he just says out loud like a cool 80s action hero line, <laughs> but it's not like a pun. It's not like a cool thing to say. He just is telling it's like sweet dreams, Tabby. <laughs> spits on the cat. Yeah, he spits on it. We just see Batman masturbating over the cat. Raish walks in. <laughs> Ubu yeah, catches Somehow. it. Day 47. <laughs> Oh, so it's just Ubu's collection. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he, that's what he does. Uh, and so from there, we get to, I think, Saving Robin, right? 
Yeah. Is Robin in that space? No, he's in a new space, I believe. Oh, because they take the map and then they go to the new space. Um, that's where the, Is that where they jump out of the airplane? Uh, yes. I liked that. Because even that, like, where you see the jacket, like, the... Uh, the jacket in the in the snow where it looks like it's supposed to be Batman. It's just a nice misdirect. Yeah, I mean they they also take their time on just like floating down. I f- I feel like I've been seeing that stuff a lot in just older movies where it's they allow pauses and they allow breathing room where it doesn't have to be just like everything all at once and it makes you appreciate it so much more where you you actually will watch it happening instead of letting them tell you that it happened yeah that's what i love about this show is just that they they allow for that to happen those silent moments like if you really if you look at the scripts there's not that much dialogue this episode i feel like has a little bit more yeah but it's still like it's not like boom 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 it's like boom live in it (laughs) yeah and it is especially for a cartoon like that's tough to keep kids' attention and stuff like that, but I, I don't remember ever being bored watching it or ever going like, "All right, let's get to it." Like it's it, it's not it, the goal is never to see what happens in the end. It's just sitting in those moments. Well, it's treating kids intelligently. I think. Yeah. It's it's trusting that they'll be interested. I mean, it still has to look good, and I think the problem is with cheaper animation. If you watch that same shot or like you know less thought out animation, it would be pretty shitty. Yeah. <laughs> and boring. But they do such a good job. There's such care. Mm. Did I mention I love this show? It's a really good show. I really did enjoy when once I discovered it was on Amazon, going back and watching it. it I treated it like a Saturday morning cartoon, and like just sat there with my cereal and watched a couple episodes um, every weekend, and oh, it was best. great. Yeah. I really, I love, I love it. I love Batman. I did try and uh, rewatch. I think you had. Um, Alex on the podcast talking about <laughs> oh mask, of, the mask of phantasm and Alex I was like I want to watch it he is my husband listeners uh, and I was like I want to watch that with you that sounds so fun and then I uh, was embarrassingly fell asleep during it and then I knew he would bring it up on the podcast and he, he did. did so I we're know. hearing your side of the story now I was exhausted I don't remember why but it was probably because I had worked a I my think you had job on the construction something that yeah late. you're right I was probably visiting my sister. Something like that. But I'm, I'm busy. I'm a very important and busy person. Yeah. And I was exhausted. And he made fun of me. <laughs> <laughs> Publicly. Publicly. I deserved it, though. I really wanted to stay awake for it. And I remember him coming to bed and, and me just going, it was her, right? <laughs> and him going, it yeah, go back to sleep. <laughs> uh, so going back to, what, the end of this first yeah, episode? that's not the episode we're here to talk about. We're not here to talk about the movie. If you want to listen to Mask of the Phantasm, listen to episode 20. Is uh, it episode 20? It is episode 20. Oh, good for you. Yeah, good. Good for you. <laughs> good good memory. You're on your own podcast. I think that's like one of the only ones I could tell you off the top of my head. Um, so Rod, the, the plan's revealed. Batman beats the shit out of all the captors. Robin is just the bait. Yeah. And then Bat- uh, then Raish reveals himself as a sexist. Mm-hmm. He's like, I need an, a male heir to assume my like throne. It's still, it's, uh, as much as I love all of these old cartoons, it's still like, no, nothing's ever going to pass the Bechdel test. It's no. just not, it's just not going to happen. <laughs> I feel like with him, I'm okay with it because he's the villain. Like yeah. the point, it, but like. 
It is, and he's like this old world, you know, like he's the eternal misogynist. Yeah, I do wish uh, just tiny bits of Talia of her just going like, oh, but, but dad, I could do, but dad. <laughs> but father, there's nothing. wait, father, yeah. hold on. Okay, well, just a second. <laughs> just cut together all those moments yeah, that just, never exist in no. the episode. <laughs> her fighting for her... Uh... For the, the family business. Well, she's working really hard on covering her half of her face with her hair. It's super sexy. It's the coolest. I always thought that that was... I was super attracted to Talia because of that. <laughs> Just because of that? Yeah. Okay. Just that. Okay. Nothing else. Fair enough. Not those long shots they do trailing up from her oh, feet yeah, all the like, way kind up. Of like, yeah. <laughs> her hips swaying. Uh, I feel like if I walked around with half my hair in my face, people would just think I, I was sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the real world version of that is for sure it's like, like Daria. a loose lemon yeah. Daria hybrid. <laughs> uh, so Ray, you know, he's like, oh, I get it. I finally see. You're a madman. <laughs> well, you really, I, I think Batman, Batman really fucked himself over. He could have had the upper hand if he just played along with Raish, but he was so incensed by everything. Yeah, I kind of like that, though, because I I always enjoy when it goes against where I expect it to go, and, like, I don't know, that feels like... Maybe maybe that would have been a fun plot twist of him being like, oh, yeah, I do... Yeah, Talia's pretty cool. We'll go on a couple dates, see what happens, and instead just, like, shutting it down as a... Just getting to it. I don't know. It's just so we can see more fighting, I guess. I guess, yeah. Well, and then they, they start to fight, but then Raish collapses, being the old man that mm-hmm. he is. Uh, and we get to the Lazarus Pit, which is like such a crazy thing in the Batman universe. It's like, I feel like the most supernatural thing that's happened on the show up to this point. That's true. I feel like, is that is that a running theme? Maybe it's just like a mytho- mythological thing that shows up in a lot of stuff. Because I kind of, I remember before I rewatched this episode, trying to picture it, and I pictured it more from the episode of Futurama, where they go into essentially the Lazarus Pit, uh, and and like, but I remember it being more like a, a jacuzzi kind of thing where you just like can walk in, you don't have to like be thrown in and like <laughs> jump out, but it's way cooler. There are different versions of it in Batman, because I think the Lazarus mm. Pit appears... Almost every time, Rage, or at least three times in this series. Uh, and this one, I think, is like the biggest, craziest one. But uh, I think there is a version of it where you can wade in. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, I picture it like a hot springs. <laughs> <laughs> just a casual hot just springs. Just a casual, it's like Palm Springs. Well, like, Lazarus is a biblical reference. Yeah. Which is like, I, I, I'm not super up. I should have researched this, but what? He's a guy that came back, right? Yes. <laughs> I don't know the Bible. Um, what if I just say yes? Yes, cool. You confidently say yes. I confidently say yes. Lazarus is uh, the, the figure in the Bible that comes back. We have phones. Uh, I'll look it up while we talk about something else. But what I love is like this pit. <laughs> this pit looks really cool is what I was it about to genuinely really say. It does really cool. Like the, that like bubbling green. The green. I love that it's the, because uh, you'd picture it, I, I don't know, I'd picture it like lava-ish or like red and bubbling, but like the green elements, it keeps it earthy and it keeps it Like kind of alien too him. in a weird way. Like Ooh. there's something, I mean it's like very like sci-fi goopy, but it still feels like it's like of the earth. Yeah, I mean, because it definitely is supposed to be, right? It's, yeah. It's not, a, or it is a natural a, a natural thing where there's pockets of Lazarus pits all around. Yeah, the world. like it's like he's just finding them and kind of like oil, like, you know, just like taking advantage of yeah, I feel where like the pits are. Yeah, I think you just go back to the same one, though. 
Right, but if they keep blowing up... <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. If, you, if Batman keeps finding them... Well, I also, like, they show, like, there's this great close-up of, like, the bubbles popping and stuff, and I'm like, even that's interesting and yeah. well-made. <laughs> so much of the stuff, like, even the, like, uh, I think the them lower, instead of him, like, just doing this, like, I could picture him just doing a beautiful dive into right. there, because he comes up without needing to, like, be lifted up or anything like that, so why not die? Right? Doesn't he just yeah, that's, explode it's just out? Like, he, but like, they, like, lower out. him down at, like, a coffin. It's kind of like Temple of Doom is what it reminded mm, me of. Like, yeah. that lowering indie or, like, the people where they, like, pull out the heart, that ceremony with Mola yeah. Ram. Uh, it kind of reminded me of that. But the, it is, like, lowering. It's like, this is the death of the old Raish. And then the birth of the and new. He explodes out of it. I love it. it. It feels like it hits just, like, the level. Like, the level of reality is being pushed so much. But it always felt like it never broke yeah. in this episode. Which is... I think because they earned so much of his backstory. But, like, mm-hmm. it's insane. He is an immortal man because of green goo. It's really... I, I do love it. And when he comes out and he's in this, like, rage and then turns on Talia, which is so interesting to me, of his immediate instinct being reborn is, I don't want kids anymore. <laughs> which I don't blame him. I feel like if you're young and fun again, like... You don't want kids saddling you down. It's so insane. Well, it's also very scary. He's just like cackling, lifts her over his head. Kind of like, it's like a very like monster movie-ish looking trope. Yeah. Like it, it almost has this weird, like old like 50s sci-fi, like, what was it? The Day the Earth Stood Still? What's that like big like robot monster? I guess it's like he's cradling her. I think I'm mixing things up, but there is like... That sounds, I'll say yes, that it's that one. So in the meanwhile, <laughs> Lazarus of Bethany, also known as Saint Lazarus or Lazarus of the Four Days, is the subject of a prominent miracle attributed to Jesus in the Gospel of John in which Jesus restores him to life four days after his death. There you go. So. Happy Easter. Happy Easter and Easter. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, you're sorry? I, I just said indecent. <laughs> uh, so that's the background. We're Jews. Um, it's, it's wildly apparent. Yeah. Uh, and probably not even like super religious. Well, I'm speaking for myself. But No, you can speak for me. Cool. I'm always. speaking for us always, always. now. Uh, we're not super religious Jews in Heil Hitler. Oh, fuck. Speaking for both of us I'm now. I'm so sorry. I yeah. shouldn't have had you speak to Too me. late. You okay. subscribed to me. I did. I signed it in blood. Uh, yeah, but by the way, the blood is everywhere. <laughs> uh, so that's our like to be continued, which yeah. is like one of the biggest cliffhangers in this series. Even before, I think it's, I can't remember if it's at the very end of that or the very beginning. Maybe it shows up in both. But the moment where Ubu goes, uh, if she gets thrown in, it'll kill somebody that's healthy. It'll only help. And then Batman snaps at him and in, in a very like improv way, I feel like, where he goes, I know what happened. Oh, yeah. Oh, he's like, I know, I know. Yeah. Like, he's just, just like, yeah, shut the fuck up. We're yeah. dealing with this. Just this, like, I gotta get this exposition out. And Batman just going, like, we don't need exposition. Shut it's up. It's like the writers being like, we know, we know, yeah. we have to say this. Okay, let's get to the action. Yeah, I thought that was a particularly good delivery, too, because sometimes that stuff can come off so stilted. Yep. Uh, <laughs> that's just really funny. Sassy Batman. Sass I man's like more like it. He's worried because he, I mean, I think. I wonder if in a different world he would want to be with Talia. I think he does, right? I think he is one of those people. Yeah, I think she shows up like, there are some episodes, I think in like Batman Beyond, where he's like looking through old love, like just kind of like sad, nostalgic Batman as an old man. And like Talia is definitely somebody who pops up and he's like, "Mm." 
<laughs> That's um, funny. Have you seen... Did you ever watch Batman Beyond? Uh-uh. Ooh, dive into it. It's worth it. Okay. It is really good. Okay. Uh, it's really good, like, weird sci-fi pushes, kind of, like, spookier stories or just, like, fun, like, techno future stuff. Oh, that's fun. But they touch upon some of the old villains, and one of the best episodes is a Ra's al Ghul, well, Talia episode. Oh, that's fun. Where she, she shows up in the future and... The premise is basically, I won't spoil it, but the it's, she's like, I want to be with you, beloved. Let's like come to the, I found a Lazarus pit. You're really old now. You can barely move. You're not Batman anymore. Why don't you come back? We've perfected this and you can kind of, so it's like old Bruce Wayne, like 80 year old Bruce Wayne Whoa. dips into a Lazarus pit and becomes like late middle-aged Bruce Wayne so it's like graying temples like it's a very cool I like that it sounds very he sounds very attractive he it's the sexiest Batman you ever will see okay uh but if you watch one episode of that I think that's particularly good okay um anyhow where were we beginning of Demon's Quest 2 previously on Batman or whatever (laughs) uh that's always fun that was always fun (laughs) So picks up, Batman saves the day, Raish just calms down. <laughs> well, after she slaps him. Right. She has to handle it. It is inter- that's the only time she takes any agency in the entire episode by going like, I got this, goes and slaps her dad, and then he's back to normal. Yeah. It's interesting. That is, that's true. Like, otherwise she stands on the sidelines, but she's like, okay, my life is threatened, boom. Yeah. The and slap of a woman. <laughs> Sometimes the only medicine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then, you know, we're back to Raish trying to convince Batman to do his bidding. He says no immediately. I think he's thrown. Oh, he gets, he he's gets about... away. It crumbles. <gasps> That's what happens, yeah, right? Yeah, because I think Ubu is about to throw him in. Some, oh, now I can't remember. But yeah, it starts to crumble. It feels very Indiana Jones again. This is part of like what they used in the opening title sequence of Adventures of Batman and Robin. It's like them holding onto that rope and like, yeah. they're, like the rocks are crumbling as they're falling into the Lazarus Which makes pit. it really convenient. I, I was so... Uh, I don't know why I get hung up on the, dumb, the dumbest details of like, what is that rope attached to? What is that? It's just a hole in the top, and there's just like a rope that's like man, man-made. Man-made. They, they, made. It took them two years to set this okay. up. We'll You're just right. assume. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah. So the Lazarus pit is falling apart, or at least like they're blowing it up. Yeah. I don't remember exactly. We'll they, just... he, they, he. Oh, he uh, hits a put just a panel in the wall, a button in the wall, oh. and it starts to self-destruct. Yes. Um, and so then, uh, Batman and Robin jump up on the rope and like, can they see my hand uh-huh. climbing? Um, climb out uh, just through the little hole in the top before it completely implodes. Which is an awesome action sequence. Really, again, well boarded and animated. Not all of the episodes have that kind of like really crisp animation and they do such a good job with mm-hmm. this one. Then they're I, in the snow, right? Yeah, then they're in the snow, running away and trying to figure out where he's going to next, like where his secret lair might be. And then that's where Batman really presses Robin. Robin's so useless in this episode. He gets kidnapped and then he's just kind of hanging out. Like, and Batman's just like, what? Did, did he say any words over and over again? And then that's where he goes, well, he did say Orpheus a bunch. Huh. And yeah. then. It, Which we find out turns, it's Project Orpheus based on the satellite that is orbiting 
And Raish's master plan of activating all the Lazarus pits so there's a global catastrophe and he can remake the world in his image. It has that cool, like, this is later, but that flat, like, that possible future that mm. they do in, like, black and white photo montage. Yeah. And, like, there's one of, like, these people, like, screaming and running away. And it's still a cartoon, but it, like, is particularly pained and, and creepy. Yeah, with, like, just everything exploding yeah. at once. Yeah. It's, uh... It's so fascinating to me how many different villains can use that of wanting to start fresh. I mean, Kingpin and Daredevil and stuff, like all of them just wanting to like, you have to start from scratch before you can. Well, if you wipe the slate clean and you're the head honcho. (laughs) I guess you get to. You got it covered. Yeah. Uh, You got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. I, I really, I, yeah, then we, we just have, like, no Robin the rest of the episode, pretty much, which yeah. is kind of great. Yeah. Uh, they were like, great, we need oh, him no, to he, be in Oh, no, he here. flies the plane. Right, that's it. It's so, I kept expecting him to pop back up and say save Batman at some point, but Bat- Batman didn't need it. Nope. It's good. It was shirtless and looking good. Yeah, right. So then we, well, we have Batman, we have that camel shot, like, all of the camels and the guys riding them, and Batman is, like, stalking them through... The, yeah. the rocks, like, the guy looks over and he's like, did I see something? And then it's like, oh, shit, I did. And before he can do anything, it's just that, like... I love that. Grabs him, puts on his coat. Leaves him in the middle of the desert to die. Yeah. <laughs> just assuming he'll be found by uh, someone. Let's hope. Uh, but, yeah, then he uh, uh, goes, and I like that, yeah, he puts on all the, the garb that the guy is wearing, but over his cape and cowl. And right. Stuff. He, he has... Even his hands are still in... His, his costume, which it's, is kind of funny. It's great. Uh, and the, he ends up at Raish's, you know, home base, which again feels like very Indiana Jones to me. Yeah. Like camped out. Like when they were like digging and that, that snake pit where they revealed the map of like where the Temple of Lost Souls or whatever. I don't remember where they like the Ark of the Covenant is. Yeah. It felt like, you know, like they were stationed there because there was another Lazarus pit. But uh they have these cool designs for like the guys manning the equipment. They're like kind of hazmat suits with like they just look like cool Jack Kirby characters. Yeah, it's cool. Like uh, I feel like they also do um, maybe this one. Maybe they do an album, but it is a little bit more referential. It, it, like with all that stuff of where it does feel like um, those. Oh, I had something I I can't remember what I was just gonna say about that. Like, him calling it out. Oh, maybe this is jumping ahead a little bit, but, like... That's fine. The calling it... Like, them almost knowing they're in a movie or in a TV show in this one. Like, when Batman, you know, tells Ubu, like, no, we get it. It's fine. Or when Batman tries to stall Raish by saying, like, well, what's your secret plan? And then Raish is like, oh, I do owe that to you. Like, that that villainous right, moment. you did save my life. Yeah, just that those moments of, like... They almost know that they're in a movie like, well, this is the formula. Well, now you have to reveal your plan. And that seems like a convenient way of getting it out. Fair enough. Shall we shirtless sword fight? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What a double climax, too. Like, we get to, like, fucking, like, Batman setting off a bunch of rockets that Mm -hmm. are, like, spinning. Or missiles that are, like, just firing at everybody. We have a huge explosion. I had to go back and watch that twice, actually, because I was like, oh, wait, is that... Did I, I missed for a second that he, I thought he had redone where the orbit or, or where the where the satellite was going to, like, launch the target. So I thought it was he had launched it at the home base. And then I realized it was just still the missiles coming back from when he had exploded the... Or blown up the entire, like, ammunition yeah. room. And cool. I guess before that, there was an Ubu fight. He finally got to 
beat the hell out of Ubu. Yeah. So yeah, cool, lip. like a little wall jump. <laughs> like he like pushes, he, like Ubu throws him, and he's like, Ugh! yeah, I like that. The real Mario, Mario. <laughs> <laughs> Batman, the original Mario. <laughs> Uh, and even him, like, uh, escaping. Like, the one trick he does have up his sleeve when they take his utility belts and everything is he just has a paperclip in his mouth. <laughs> hey, but it works. man can do with a paperclip. It's amazing. A regular man or woman yeah. could only hold papers together. Fair enough. Or pick yeah. a lock if they're really good at picking locks. True. Uh, although I do think it's cool that they bring up, like, remove his utility belt, like, we, like, few villains are like hey remember this thing this is how he gets out of a lot of situations yeah um and the respect of should i take off his mask no no let him keep his anonymity now yeah it's his like dignity or there's something about it yeah there is that respect that you brought up earlier like i I like that about race it's like he sees this as like a grand a grander thing there's like there's formalities to it there are rules i do think he truly like in the very end when he does um, like fall into the pit it is like you beat me I concede like I think it is that he is a true like gentleman really a true what what people used to think of what a true gentleman is including like how he treats his daughter and all of those things but like he's a man's man where it's well I, I lost fair and square I concede well even though yeah. he doesn't but you, you've bested me yeah you are the, the, the better at this so you carry on. <laughs> Take my daughter. Take my daughter. Uh, hold on, Talia. Let me mansplain something to you quickly. Uh, Ra's al Ghul, world's oldest mansplainer. Uh, he, I wonder, yeah, I guess like he, it really is like a noble way to die. There's something like, we, you know, that sword fight is so cool. Yeah. Also, Batman with a fucking sword. It's uh, I, like the stairs. They take the time to like show his facial expressions. Like the first time Raish comes at him with the sword, he looks surprised. Yeah. And I think that's so interesting where it's, I don't know what else he would have expected to happen, but just the surprise of like, oh shit, I got to fight now. We're doing this? Yeah. It was a very cool human moment. It was a very like Bruce Wayne coming through before, uh, rather than yeah. Batman of going, oh, this, this could be something there's something brutal about it there's something really like it's like okay put away the gadgets uh yeah take off your shirts (laughs) let's Uh, compare six packs yeah i mean yours is unfairly very new race i wish i could if there was a pool that i could just dip in and then have a six pack yeah honestly like i think if i got dipped in that as an old man i just go back to not having a six pack (laughs) (laughs) like race must have been in good shape when he was younger at the very least that's true uh, or it, it instantly this the six pack pit. How disappointing <laughs> if it took him back to just like a chubby teenager. <laughs> just uh, Batman, uh, <laughs> you will fall victim to uh, this grand scheme. <laughs> I don't have specifics. I only have a voice. Um, yeah, it was I, that. Like it's such a. There's like something just so intense. Like because they're shirtless and sword fighting. It's like. Fucking. It's just bare bones. Like, it's just very... And I do think there is that element of, like, masculinity. Mm-hmm. It's a, a, I mean, that's always a, a running theme with Batman, obviously. But, yeah, just that it's... I don't know where it does get a, a little, like, um, 
uh, erotic isn't the word. Homoerotic? Yeah, a little homoerotic. Like, a, a lot of that stuff. It's the same. Like, everything is so masculine until it, like, starts to spill over into that. Right, it's like Top Gun homoerotic. Yeah, yeah. Or but, football. Or football, I guess. Period. Yeah, there's a lot of tackling and touching and yeah. shirtlessness. Well, not in football, but... Uh, in my mind, it is. Yeah, you well, you have your own version of football where you painstakingly <laughs> use After Effects to remove <laughs> all of your clothing, uh, and then you watch the game. This is... Yeah, they, they, like, there's, like, something about, like, we're both men, and, like, we respect each other, and, like, now it's time for brawn. Yeah. But fancy brawn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and maybe we'll tackle each other and kiss in a Lazarus pit. <laughs> Uh, I wonder if that I wonder if that was a turning point for any kids and their sexualities. Like I they're watching so. like these two like whatever like hunky characters. I don't know if Ray Shuggles. Uh, he's more he of, is like, when he's young. I mean, he's got the gray temple. Like even the gray doesn't go away after. A while. Yeah, it's like a Gods and Monsters Ian McKellen yeah. uh, seducing the Brendan Fraser Batman. Well, it is. I was looking up. Um, who does his voice and it's um david warner yeah he's great yeah and he is we talked about him he has such a good voice he has such a good voice and i didn't um i never watched like doctor who or any of those things that that he's been on but i i did recently watch wallander um what is is because i'm a 60 year old woman (laughs) who watches things you jump in a lazarus (laughs) bit I did. I will again. Oh, wow. I know. Uh, back to frizzy hair and braces. That's where I always end up is back in eighth grade. Ah. Just a handful of goldfish shoving <laughs> it in my it. mouth. Yeah. Not wanting to talk to my friends. Oh. He, David Warner, what I know him from is Scream 2. Wow. He plays uh, the the theater teacher in that. And he has like one scene where he like confides in... In her, you know, like she's like, I, I feel like I'm going crazy or whatever. And he's like, What I need you to do is get into the scene and like really be Ophelia, you know. And they're talking about that, and he's like, All right, action, and like that's it. Then he's not in the movie again, but he has like that's one funny. like heart to heart. I like that. Um, he's a good, good voice actor. And uh, Helen Slater is Talia. Did you know that? Who's Helen Slater? She's Supergirl. The original oh, Supergirl. That's awesome. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. A nice. I, I have no idea if she does more voiceover work or if that was just like a fun thing that she interesting. Did. Yeah, I thought that was a cool, weird like. I think I'm sure they grabbed her together. It would have been fun, and you know, like why not incorporate this version of a superhero into our version? Yeah, I know that there were multiple Talias by the end of the series, oh. which I don't know why they kept recasting. You never know. If oh, it's interesting. Like... So maybe it wasn't her in this episode. No, I mean, if you looked it up, that's probably who it was. I think I looked up this specific episode. Now I'm doubting myself. Do Thanks not doubt. Lot. Thanks a lot. Sorry. Uh, and then they sword fight to the death. Yeah. He... He, yeah, he, like, is holding on, like, he, like, stabs his sword into the side of the pit. Which is very cool and very hard to do. I've tried that before. Yeah, I know. I always fall in. Yeah. There's a, a equal chance of me just breaking the sword or bouncing off of it. Oh, yeah. It's a strong sword, strong grip. Yeah. Uh, and noble in, death. Into granite or whatever yeah. that is. It's pretty good. Yeah. How did he do that? That's like a, a sword in the stone stuff. What's his name? Uh, Merlin? King Arthur? Yeah. The owl? Yeah, the owl. The old witch? <laughs> the owl. Oh, the owl was Merlin. No, yeah. uh, Merlin is the owl. And Spoiler. other stories. Uh, <laughs> I would watch that show. <laughs> oh, and then we have, like, you know, whatever. Talia is sent off after that kiss. I yeah. mean, it is, like, a cool, very, like, Casablanca-y ending, but also the implications of, like, 
you're a woman. Yeah, <laughs> you're here Mwah. for this. Bye. And just literally leaves her in the middle of the death, shirtless. Beautiful oh, no, he's, shot, though. Yeah, it is. He's shirtless. She's not shirtless. Right. We were, I was always hoping she would be shirtless and he would he would be pantsless, but <laughs> uh, you don't always get what you wish for. And then we have, like, that really long, like, we see, like, Raish's hand, like, grip out, and it's just, like, steaming for a really long time. Yeah. They just, I think, reused the cackle from the last episode, but more echoey. Oh, that makes sense. It's just like, ah! <laughs> it is really cool, because then... Anyone? I don't know. Does that he come out more evil? Do we see him again? We do. Ever? He shows up two more times in this series, and one more time in the redesigned one, and then another time later. It's cool. He really is the the worthy adversary, right? Every time he pops up, it's important. It's cool. Yeah, I, I do. I really like that. Uh, I really like the relationship. I'm glad he survives it. And I thought Batman, I guess, and you know what? It was so cool, too, because I know Batman doesn't kill people. So I think they had to have him go, you win. I'm going to let go now. Yes. Um, Instead, because Batman was trying, but by doing it any other way, it means that Batman has killed someone. Right. Threw him off a camel, left him in the desert. You can assume maybe that person would survive. (laughs) A pit? Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Well, also in Batman Begins with... Ra's al Ghul. Uh, he kills him, basically. Batman does... He goes... I remember that being a point of contention when the movie came out between fans. Like, there's, like, some airship... Not airship. There's, like, a battle, I think... Maybe it was on, like, Gotham, like... Uh, not Metro. It was, like, a monorail, right? Something like that. Like, that his parents built. It's been a while since I watched that movie. Me too. But I think the final climax... The climactic scene was, like, him versus Raish. And I think he, like, lets Raish die. Like, he wow. purposely lets him die. Uh, and I remember being upset because in my... I was like, no, Batman doesn't do that. And he doesn't, even though, like, so many people die. But now, like, in... The, like, the Nolan movies are, like, probably... Like, a blip on the radar compared to the most recent, you know, Batman versus Superman film where apparently he just kills everybody. Wow. I guess everyone's allowed to change. Everyone's allowed to change. Even I mean, Batman. Like, the defense of those movies, I guess, is they're different versions of things and people are pissed because it's not the one that they want to remember but i just it's not the one that i personally want to watch i think (laughs) yeah me too i agree anyway Um, any final thoughts on the demon's quest well i have a fun fact oh please i have a fun fact for you i have to just double check it um and this has kind of nothing to do with um (laughs) with the animated series but my uh the dog food i use is made by burt ward (laughs) what (laughs) burt ward makes dog food burt ward and his wife run a pet rescue i i think which is now defunct i'm not 100 percent sure but it's where i went with alexburg to get his dog tesla um and they it was like a compound deep in like an hour out of town an hour east of here maybe something like that and it's run by Burt Ward and his wife and they had like a hundred dogs there um and that's where Burt got brought his dog home but they make their own dog food there and it's like an, a really natural brand of dog food um and uh 
they I'm very easily swayed by things. And so even in like the hour that I was there, I she convinced me that it was better than the dog food I was currently using, which was just like normal store brand. I was like, okay, they happen to sell it at Gelson's, which is right next to my house. So uh, I now feed my dogs. The, Holy the, dog food. Holy, <laughs> it's uh, But on the packaging, it's called Gentle Giants, but the, um, the packaging is like, it's really chaotic packaging with lots of pictures of dogs, but it's also got like Batman, like expletive kind of stuff on it because really? it has a picture of him on the back um, because it's his brand. So Bert, This might be the best it. end to an episode I've ever had. I thought that was a fun thing to share. Yeah, Burt Ward makes dog food now. It's pretty cool. And I feel proud of this because I know you've had Alex Burke and Alex Fernie on the show. All of them use this dog food and none of them have brought this up. Well, guys, there you have it. Real exciting. Burt Ward dog food. <laughs> Buy it at a Gelson's near you for $100 a bag. It's not even that expensive. What? I know. Holy price check. <laughs> Punch that one up in post. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That was real fun. Today's guest. Man, there is too much to say about Dennis, a.k.a. Denny O'Neill. He's a comic book legend. He fundamentally changed the way we view Batman, and his 1970s run with Neil Adams took a campier caped crusader and turned him into a dark detective. He's responsible for creating iconic Batman characters like Ra's al Ghul, Talia, and Dr. Leslie Tompkins, and revitalizing the Creeper and the Question. He also happened to write this two-parter based on his very own comic from the 70s. If you're unfamiliar with Batman's origins or comic book history in general, get ready because he really delivers one hell of a history lesson from a first-hand perspective that sees the Dark Knight go from friendly authority figure to vigilante and everything in between. I felt super lucky to chat with him over the phone and had a great time just listening to his treasure trove of info. So please enjoy my interview with Denny O'Neill. How's it going? I have no complaints. It's it's sunny out there, and I'm past my bronchitis, and all is well. Let's do it. Cool. Well, I wanted to maybe kick things off by asking, how did you get started? What got you into comics? Well, a- a- answer A to that is when I was a little kid that went to Sunday Mass with my father, he stopped at what in the Midwest we call the confectionery, what Easterners would call a mom-and-pop store, and he got a quart of milk for the family, and he often bought me a comic book. I don't think I could read yet, but I could look at the pictures. And then when I did read, I found comic books a lot more interesting than Spot and Dick and Jane and that damn ball. Then I got into... The habit of, during the summer, walking up and down Claxton Avenue with my little red wagon full of comic books and stopping at the houses of the kids I knew who read comics and trading. So my father's 10-cent investment in a comic book could maybe get me ultimately something like 10 or 20 comics to read. 
and nobody was even thinking about collecting anything. Uh, so they were, uh, I now know, a fairly important part of my very young life. And then they disappeared. And I got interested in a lot of other things. And I got into high school and then into college and acting and the Navy. Just didn't think about them at all anymore. And part B of this story is after getting out of the Navy and teaching for substitute teaching for a year, I took a job as a reporter. Then I went off to New York to work for Mort Weisinger, and I kept on as a reporter. And I did something extremely stupid. What did you I, do? Well, one of my, the first, my first stop every morning was the police station to check with the what happened overnight there, and then I went to a firehouse. We were secretly, Arlene and I, the woman's page editor, helping uh, the black group. There was a terrible uh, rural slum with unpaved streets and shacks. So that was, it was called Smelterville, and that's where the black people live. So uh, we quietly helped them, and I got this idea. I was hanging out on weekends with peace people and racial equality people. Then he'd accepted a job with Stan Lee. Marvel Comics was really beginning to happen. Stan had done virtually everything for years, except the art. Editing, publishing chores, uh, writing all the scripts. Suddenly he needed help. Then he hired Roy and he needed another assistant. So they sent me the moral writer's test. And this was four pages of art. I think it's probably Jack Kirby art without copy. So they asked me to, if I felt like doing it. Roy took me up to Moral Comics and I met Stan. And then within the course of a few days, I went from being a small-town journalist to a New York comic book writer. That's my connection. I didn't expect to stay in New York. I thought, I will stick with this for a year or so, and then I will go back to the real world. That was 50 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I wanted to chat with you about Batman, obviously. And I wanted to talk about... I guess to give a little backstory for the people who have only seen the animated series and aren't as familiar with the breadth of your work and how you influenced it. I mean, you're you're known for restoring Batman to this dark and brooding detective. We wouldn't have the Batman we have today without you. You know, you introduce Ra's al Ghul and Talia and Leslie Tompkins and, you know, all of these wonderful characters and amazing stories. And I wanted to kind of get the backstory on how you shifted things from the campier Batman into a darker detective? Well, the shift away from camp was by editorial fiat. You may remember that back then, well, Batman has gone through about five different iterations with some sub-iterations for each, but uh, the dominant Batman at that time was a comedic one. Right, it was, I mean, even the Adam West television show was pretty popular beforehand, which, do you feel like it influenced the comics? Well, yeah, I I know it did. Uh, I don't think very many of the comic book guys got camp, Uh, you know, understood that kind of humor. I talked to Stan Lee the morning after the first Batman, which I had watched 
in an appliance store because I didn't, I was a real poor guy. I didn't have a television. And Stan said he liked the little 30 second animation that opened it and nothing else. <laughs> Success in another medium does not always influence comic book sales. But in this case, it did. So Julie Schwartz, the Batman editor, was kind of half-heartedly trying to follow the lead of the TV show. The first time he offered me the character was right in the middle of the camp thing. And we tried not to be judgmental, but I thought, I, I, I can't do this well. So I did a fill-in story about New Orleans jazz, which... Julie loves, and I'm certainly, I certainly like. And the second time was Camp Was Gone. That show was hugely popular the first year, and kind of popular the second year, and limped into a third year, and then somebody turned out the light. I am my regular weekly meeting to Julie. He said, you know, in effect, we're going to continue publishing Batman, obviously, but we're not doing the camp stuff anymore. So my bad invitation of Julie Schwartz, what do you got, my boy? <laughs> Everybody's favorite Jewish uncle. I went back to what Bill Finger started with in 1939 and added to that what the world had learned in the ensuing quarter of a century about telling comic book stories. I mean, Batman was originally conceived as a way to cash in on Superman's success. It was a brand new business. I don't think too many people understood this, this odd little storytelling vehicle. So that's what I thought I did until I got hired to edit the Batman franchise in the mid-80s, and then I looked at some of those old stories and found that what Neil and I, and I guess Julie did, was remember stuff as we thought it should be, not as it was. The idea of the kids he and his parents killed, that was five issues into the run, and a few months later there was Robin, which of its very nature lighten uh, the whole series. Bill Finger told me and many other people that his big influence was The Shadows, stories written by Walter Gibson. And Tony Tallon, who is in the process of reprinting all of The Shadow stories and all of the Doc Savage stories, oh, about four years ago, he found something he sent to me, and yeah, it was... It was the first Batman story, allowing for the fact that it was an eight-page comic book story and probably a 50,000-word novel. But it was beyond close. So that version, though, was off and on, but more off and on. I mean, by the end of World War II, in which Batman, the draft-dodging son of a bitch, did not participate, except in the movies. Uh, but by the end of that time, 1945, he was carrying a platinum police badge. So obviously this guy was no longer a vigilante. He was an authority figure. And it went on from there. I mean, you have to understand that World War II had just ended. The world was, the country was you know, recovering from that, and they weren't in a mood, the, the nation was not in a mood to mistrust authority figures. And implicit in being a vigilante is law and order isn't working. So 
they adjusted, and Batman became a cop. And then after the witch hunts of the early 50s with Dr. Frederick Wortham blaming juvenile delinquency on comic books, editorial writers and politicians jumping on that bandwagon, Senator McCarthy of Wisconsin was over in the House of Representatives getting a lot of publicity from staging a witch hunt which purported to find communists under every doormat. The, the two of them nearly destroyed comics. There were something like 40 publishers after World War II, and within a few months, it was down to a dozen or less. Most of them, the, the people who lost their jobs, there was over 800 jobs lost. So the company, DC, there were three superheroes left, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. And somebody decided that they maybe should try reviving The Flash. It had been on publication for about a decade. Julie said, all eyes turned to me, and he said, I, I guess I'm stuck. What Julie did was not merely revive The Flash, who was Jay Garrick, and he had that... Uh, girlfriend once told me it, he was wearing a cestus. Instead of merely, you know, bringing that back... Julie reinvented the character. He kept the essential part intact. This is the fastest guy alive. And he changed everything else. The costume, the backstory, the secret identity. All to reflect the world as it was in 1959 and not in 1940. And surprise, it was a big honking hit. At the same time, Julie invented uh, to, to account for the fact that there was the old Flash and the new Flash. He borrowed a trope from science fiction. There were two Earths, parallel Earths. It's an idea that is getting to be pretty common on television, fairly esoteric back then, but it worked beautifully. You had your cake and eat it. And that worked so well that over the next year or two, Julie invented most, reinvented most of the DC superheroes. He left Superman alone, and he left Batman alone. And that was the background to the the camp thing, because that, the, the 50s Batman was essentially what they are, were making fun of. While Julie was reinventing the plot elements of superheroes, Stan across town at Marvel was reinventing the approach to doing the work. Uh, I think I read Marvel Comics back in Cape Girardeau, and Stan was, or whoever was writing it, I didn't know names, but was not taking it seriously. There were humorous credits, and there were humorous captions. There were lots of crossovers. So here I was. I was a college graduate and a veteran of the Cuban blockade, and and a guy who had hitchhiked, and I was a really sophisticated guy, and I was above comics. But since Stan wasn't taking it seriously, I could read them and not take it seriously and enjoy the kind of tongue-in-cheek aspect. Along comes the 60s, and Julie asked me on me to, you know, do something with Batman, in effect. Well, I was this time happy to do it. I didn't want to do the camp stuff, 
But this guy was being handed, in effect, a blank slate. You know, do what you want, which <laughs> I was always up for that. And so we did Secret of the Waiting Graves, which historians tell me was the turning point in the character's uh, long history. And other people have taken it a lot darker. Frank Miller, for example. But I guess that kind of serious take on Batman is the one that has had the greatest staying power. It's it's obviously what the universe wants this character to be. Uh, well, when I've spoken and, with all of the people who have worked on the animated series from the 90s, they always cite your work as the huge influence for their show. They were like, we couldn't have done it without Denny O'Neill's work. I mean, a lot of the stories were your stories adapted or parts of the stories that were kind of worked into it. I know, like, the Joker's five-way revenge was part of the Laughing Fish. And, of course, you know, Daughter of the Demon and the Demon Lives Again is the Demon's Quest episode. There's No Hope in Crime Alley, A Vow from the Grave. Those are all adaptations of your work, which I think is so cool. What do you think was so influential about those stories? Part of it is Batman has been lucky in attracting talent. What we had going in, it was not uh, not the grim thing for long. He has been allowed to change. The trick, of course, is to remember what made him popular in the first place. So he is a man who is obsessed, who saw his parents murdered in front of him, and has allowed that to shape his life. I read uh, when I was first beginning to work on Batman, an essay by the great Alfred Bester, who worked on comics in the uh, 40s before going on to write brilliant science fiction. And this particular essay was about how useful it is for a writer to work with an obsessed character. And I thought, that's Batman. That's the key to his psychology. Uh, You have to change it a little bit because you take it in one direction, and I think it has occasionally been taken there, and you've got a psychopath. You take it in another direction, and you've got a wimp. But if you make him an existential man, a guy who chooses to do what he does because, well, for, among other reasons, there's nothing better he can think of to do with his life. In my personal Bruce Wayne biography, he has one of two possible endings. He will be 45 on one of those rooftops, and he'll miss a step, and he'll fall to his death. Or he realizes, I'm a professional athlete, in effect, and my time is past. So he seeks out Talia, wherever she is on Earth, and they get married again. This time it takes. And they have the most beautiful, brilliant, intelligent children in the world, and they live happily ever after. <laughs> or something like that. Well, that second but if that man were real, it, it would be one thing or the other. Speaking of Talia, I'd love to chat with you. Let me ask you this. What is the correct pronunciation of, is it Raish or Raz al Ghul? I've heard it always. Uh, my daughter asked a professor at UCLA that question about 20 years ago, and I think... What she got was Raish al Ghul. That comes from, I, I don't know where Julie got it, but that's what he gave me when 
P&I decided it was time for a new villain. So you pronounced it Raish uh, when you were writing the comics. I've pronounced it every way you can pronounce it. <laughs> well, tell me about the creation of Raish. Just decided that the world had had enough Penguin stories and Catwoman stories and Joker stories, kept going back to the well. And it was time to create, with malice of forethought, a new villain. So Julie said Rachel Ghoul, and I took it home and figured out what, uh, who would be a worthy opponent for Batman. For openers, Rachel was the first person to figure out how to figure out the secret identity thing. And that was it. Uh, that's part A. Part B is when Neil Adams got hold of that script, I thought he did a perfect race. I mean, uh, a lesser artist might have put him in spandex with a cape and a mask. Uh, it is essential to that character that he have gravitas and dignity. And that's what Neil gave us at the same time, making him look unique. So he, he comic book villains wear their hearts on their sleeves because they usually either their name or their costume tells you a lot about them. In this case, we had a guy wearing clothes, but they were robes. It was almost a, a religious suggestion there. And, um, you know, from then on, it was the usual stuff. We, we got paid the same for doing Batman as for doing Super Friends. It's just that doing Batman was a hell of a lot more fun. <laughs> but we came up with this character, and he stuck. I was wondering if they were going to ever use him in the movies, because I thought, he would he would work very well in a screenplay. Well, as you probably know, they did. Indeed, Batman Begins. Yeah, the thing that Paul Levitz and I have in common is the last Batman movie was the first one since 1988 where we had not seen an advanced copy of the screenplay. And I decided I didn't want to know anything about it. I wanted to go in as cold as possible because every time I see a superhero thing you know there's I, I bring some freight with it but I wanted to go into that one as close to a regular theater goer as possible and did you enjoy it uh, so I was taken by surprise when it turns out to be Mary and Cotillard and not my notion of Talia at all but a perfectly valid notion on its own terms you try never to bring preconceptions to these things. The way that character was written and the way she played it was a perfectly fine way to interpret Talia. How did you get involved with the animated series in the 90s? How, how much did they consult you? What was your experience? You were saying you worked on the liner notes as well? Oh, the animated series. Well, I was sitting in my DC Comics office one day and a couple of guys I didn't know came in and asked if they could show me something. So we walked down to where there was a video set up, and they showed me what became the first minute of the Batman series. And I told them, you have my blessing, because just on the basis of that kind of glimpse into what they were doing, I thought, this, this is really valid. They used, I think, 15 of my stories, and I ended up writing... The, the first Rush Al Ghoul story, the adaptation, uh, part one. Part two went to another writer because of a, an editorial snafu, and I I won't get into that. But, uh, you know, I, they, Jeanette and I went out 
to California to talk to the first team that had been assembled to do this TV show, a young woman whose background had been the Smurfs, charming, beautiful young woman. We talked to her and her crew for a day or so, and then she left the project. And the two guys that came into my office were Paul Dini and um, what is the other guy's name? Is it Bruce Tim? Bruce Tim, yeah. And we went out a second time. By that time, they had replaced this uh, charming and beautiful young woman with a guy who really, really understood this stuff. And I think he and I talked about, when I agreed to do a script for him, we talked about the villain for like over an hour. Television is potentially the best storytelling form we've ever had. But it's early days where, well, I guess people were learning how to do it. Yeah, what was your but, experience uh, writing the episode? Uh, I mean, it is something fans sometimes don't want to hear. It is a job. If you forget that, you're likely to find yourself in deep water. And by that time, if you don't know how to do a job after doing it for as long as I had, then you should look for another way to earn a living. So there's a point at which experience takes over. Uh, my own way of working is that I have to have an opening and I have to have an ending. I always told my writers that you've got to convince me that you'll be able to end this. But if you come along with a, with a better idea than what you're about to tell me for an ending, yeah, let me know. Sure, and I, I've never refused one of those. Uh, I try to make sure that we remember there is a certain amount of discipline and structure involved, and yet keep it loose enough for people to have fun and to come up with different ideas as we go along. That became particularly pertinent when we would do like these 1,100-page continuities. We did two or three of those. Oh, you had uh, mentioned that you had worked on the liner notes for all of the animated episodes. What did that entail? Yeah. It was a, a minor freelance job. I had my, and, and I, I should hasten to say, I paid my assistant, Darren Vincenzo, to collect the information, and I put it into prose. There wasn't much to it beyond that, except that downstairs we have something like, I don't know, 50 or 60 old videotapes, which... Uh, contains many of those stories. You're not always supposed to have fun. Well, let me ask you this. I have some fan questions that people had sent in for you. One person asks, other than Batman, which DC hero do you feel Raish would deem worthy of being his successor? Who would be Raish's successor? Yeah, who do you... If Batman wasn't, you know, the person to... He would deem worthy of being a successor. Who's the next DC character? Oh, I don't know. The the, the uh, TV people in Arrow are doing a pretty good job with his second daughter. I didn't know he had a second daughter until I saw that, that TV episode. It was created by Greg Rucka. She wouldn't be a bad choice. Greg? I don't know of anybody else off the top of my head. Do you feel that... Dr. Leslie Tompkins was represented accurately to like how you originally wrote her. <laughs> she keeps coming up this week or this month. A little background: <laughs> Leslie was based 
very loosely on a real person. Really? Yeah. That person was Dorothy Day. And you may or may not know that my politics are pretty far to the left. So Dorothy Day was a woman who I just read her earliest journalism. A friend of mine collected it. While she was still in teens, she was doing feature work for a major New York newspaper and becoming in interested in helping the poor. She went on to be, uh, according to one story, the only woman in New York who could drink Eugene O'Neill under the table. <laughs> that's quite I don't feat. know if that's true or not, but again, secondhand story. She's tried to steal from every library in the country. I gather it was a little bit spicy. Probably not very. Anyway, when she was in 1939, converted to Catholicism, and she started the Catholic Worker, which did had two missions. One was to follow in the footsteps of Christ and feed the hungry and clothe the naked. And she wrote, uh, she put out a newspaper, which still, when I first saw it in college, it cost a penny. It still costs a penny. And it had um, a weekly column by her and and other stuff from the pacifist you know, side of radical America. Uh, one of my oldest friends is her grandchild. And my first mother-in-law was a close friend of hers. So I actually met Dorothy. And I wanted to, well, to put that that voice in the Batman mythos, because end of the day, Batman is often about solving problems with violence. I at least wanted to put that in there. And also there was a hole in the continuity. What did Batman do between, say, ages 8 and 18? Dorothy, the real person, was a journalist and not a doctor, but I made her a doctor. And uh, her relationship with Bruce Wayne, whom she knew was Batman, was, I believe you're a good man, I believe you are doing the best you can, but you're wrong. Violence is never an answer, and his response was kind of mine when I first encountered pacifists. Well, these are good, decent people, but they don't understand that I have to solve it this way. And so that was, that was... Leslie Tompkins, named after Tompkins Square Park on Avenue Way on the Lower East Side. And uh, <laughs> along comes Gotham. And my my Dorothy was, I guess the image I have is who she was when I met her. And that would have been a tall, grave, uh, very grave, beautiful woman. But somebody who you would instinctively look at and decide not to mess with. The Dorothy I knew, who is not a saint, she once told her daughter, don't let them call me a saint. That defangs me. That takes away my power. Uh, saints are these, you know, little plaster beings. I want to be effective. Mm. I want, well, as I said, I, I wrote a blurb for the book about her early work and said that she raised hell fed the poor, clothed the naked. Anyway, that was that was Leslie's long run. I had one more one more question for you, which was I guess outside of your work as a writer and editor for Batman, what other projects in the comic industry are you most proud of? The question if I had been writing adult novels during those years, I would have probably been writing very similar stuff. 
I was walking back from dinner in an editorial retreat with Paul Levitz once. I'd had the Batman job for about six months. And he asked me when I was going to start writing again. So I, I pursued it a little bit. And he said, well, for the last seven or so years, you've been doing good mainstream, middle-of-the-road stuff for Marvel. But before that, you pushed the envelope. Why don't you push the envelope? And don't worry about making a profit. Uh, leave money out of this. Just write comic books that you feel like writing, which was a wonderful gift to be given by the guy whose job was to take care of the money. So I asked what characters were available, and there was the question, which was a character, you know, Batman-sized character that I liked working with. But the problem there was Steve Ditko's politics. Extremely right. I have to hastily say I admire Steve for sticking to his guns. But I was told, do what you want. And so I had Vic Sage die in the first issue and then be revived, not knowing if that would happen to me a few years later. And uh, that was a symbolic, okay, the old question is gone. This is a new question. Many years later, a friend asked me, if you were going to change it that much, why didn't you just invent your own character, which I think is a very good question because Steve could not have... Common. He, he it must have galled him what I did with his character. And my only answer is it never occurred to me. Uh, the boss said, you know, you can do the question. And I said, these are my conditions. And the boss said, fine. If I had to do it again, maybe I would try and do it from scratch. And I, you know, deep apologies to say, it was the second time I screwed with one of his characters, the Creeper was the first time I made change, not radical changes, but I'm sure that Steve would not have written those stories. And I'm not in the business of, of trampling on other people's work. Um, I would rather not do that. Uh, apart from that, gee whiz, Binky and his buddies, no, I guess not. Uh, no particular, no, nothing jumps out at me. I've written... I don't know, a hundred superheroes. And basically, that was a, always a pretty good job. There were years when, because of my own fault, it was not a good job. Paul Levitz told me that the other guys in the comic world did not expect me to live to party. Why was that? Because I had, I had some addiction issues. And sometimes some people live through that shit and some people don't. And I don't know what the X factor is. But I always managed to put together three or four hours of sobriety so I could write, you know, adequate stories. Nothing that I would ever care to reread. But basically, if people complain about being the hard life of a writer, I suggest they drive a cab or, as I did in college, work in a bottle factory. 110 degrees, deafening noise, heat, bad air, and swing shifts. I mean, sitting in a nice, cool office and making up stories, yeah, sometimes it's not real easy. But compared to almost anything I might have done with my life, it was easy. Uh, and I worked with such good people.
And I got to play with Batman, who is one of the best storytelling tools ever devised, because there's so many different kinds of stories that you can tell without violating the basics of the character. And toward the hour, I, I married my childhood sweetheart, what was it, 27 years ago, after not seeing her for 30 years. Well, her timing was exquisite, because just about then, the job changed from you live in Queens and you get two, two weeks vacation and you take the subway and to you travel all over the world. <laughs> Been on panels at the Library of Congress and the Smithsonian and we've been to Chile and Argentina and Australia and places it would never have occurred to me to go to. Gradually, when my back was turned, we became respectable and I suddenly realized I don't have to apologize for this anymore. No way. Mike Houston, whose producer credit has been on all of the Batman movies since 88, made a movie about comic book guys. And even Stan Lee was one of the people interviewed, said, well, you know, when I first started doing this, I mean, I would not, at a cocktail party, I would not mention comic books. I'd say, you know, I was in New York publishing or the magazine business. And if they pushed it and I had to say comic books, that usually ended the conversation. Those guys were made to be ashamed of what they did. And what they did was invent a language, create from pre-existing materials, but create an art form. And they were kids. One guy was 13. Jim Shooter was 13. And gradually... People came to their senses and realized that this is a valid art form. It is what Stephen King calls a story delivery system. And there are good ones and there are bad ones. And there are ones I like and there are ones I don't like. But no medium, no form is intrinsically evil. And comics now... People like Will Eisner and some of the underground guys have shown that this is a valid way to tell almost any kind of story you want to tell. So we are so I respectable. I can no longer pretend to be a long-haired hippie rebel. I'm an old guy who does his funny book stuff. <laughs> well, thank you so much for chatting with me. This was amazing to to actually get to talk with you about this. Okay, if you need anything else, you have the phone number. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Bye. Bye. There you have it. The historical 30th episode of this series is over. Another Batman the Animated Series on the books, baby. If you liked what you heard, please rate, subscribe, and leave a comment in iTunes. You can donate to the podcast at patreon.com slash batspodcast. Got some great rewards and incentives, so check it out. Find me on Twitter at batspodcast or at HeyJustin. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Speaking of Casey Trela, check out his new album by his band Tuft. It's online now. It's called Look, Look. Anyway, Harry Chaskin is the voice of the podcast. Thanks to my guests, Denny O'Neill and Deb Tarika. Special thanks to This American Life producer, Tori Malatia, who recently shared his birthday plans with me. At the moment when sun and moon are in proper alignment to cause the greatest upheaval in Earth's geomagnetic field, I shall send a signal to that satellite beginning a countdown. Five minutes thereafter, one bomb will be lowered deep into the heart of each 
The satellite will in turn relay a microwave signal that will detonate all the bombs simultaneously. The multiple explosions will result in a global chain reaction. All the Lazarus pits throughout the world will overflow. The globe will be saturated with their chemical solution. And when the resultant cataclysm has abated, there will come a blessed peace. And this poor, defiled planet shall find itself restored to its former pristine glory. Not my kind of party, Tori, but sounds fun. Thanks for listening, guys. See you in a couple more weeks for another brand new BTAP, baby.